Amen. If you will, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. Uh, we're going to begin reading in just a moment in verse 27 and read through verse 44. Again, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 20, chapter 20, beginning our reading in verse uh, 27. We have spent uh, over two years in the study of this particular gospel. And it is quite easy uh, when engaged in that lengthy study with this much uh, material available to us from the gospel to get lost kind of in the the flow of things. I would uh, remind you that we kind of set apart uh, a section of the gospel back on Easter Sunday uh, when I preached uh, the text that tells us about uh, the Lord Jesus and His arrival uh, in Jerusalem uh, on sometimes what we refer to as Palm Sunday or we refer to His entrance as His triumphal entry. Uh, We've talked about the fact that it really uh, wasn't triumphant in the sense uh, that uh, uh, He did not was not received rightly as the promised King of the Jews. He was actually rejected. And so we've been in that series and We've been in a what you might call an arc of uh, several sermons in length. That I speak of the uh, the controversies uh, and the consternation that these controversies uh, provoked, that ultimately would place Christ on the cross, where He would suffer and die for our salvation. And so, I don't think it would be incredibly unusual for someone not very well versed in the Scripture, uh, someone that uh, might only have the, the barest of a, a kind of a, a Sunday schoolish, a, 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 a children's Sunday schoolish uh, type understanding of uh, the story of Jesus, of the Gospels. And you certainly could ask the question that my understanding is that this man Jesus was the best man who had ever lived. That he never sinned, he only did that which was right, that that indeed he was truth incarnate, love incarnate, mercy incarnate. How and, and why is it that he could be so hated? That he could be despised by the very people that should have recognized very quickly That indeed, He is exactly who was promised. He is the one He proclaimed Himself to be. But yet, here we see in what is the the final week of His life here in Jerusalem, and and as we've looked at the last few weeks uh, there, within the confines of the temple, with the various sects, the various religious sects, uh, groups represented by their leadership, the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the, the chief priests and the Sadducees. And while they were certainly divergent groups, many times in profound and deep disagreements, they found a point of unity. And that is that this man Jesus must be destroyed. Uh, he, he must be done away with. That, that which we have come to cherish regarding the status quo is going to be threatened 
if this man is not ultimately and finally silenced. And so we, see, we have seen in the, the course of these sermons the trajectory, the, the purpose of these questions to uh, stir controversy, uh, to create uh, uh, an ever-escalating uh, sense of animosity uh, toward Jesus uh, so their conspiracy can come to its fruition, uh, that they can bring the evidence even to the, the Roman authorities and say this Jesus has not only shook us up as good and faithful and loyal Jews, peaceful, faithful Roman citizen Jews, he has also threatened a very foundation of the Roman Empire. He is a threat to your practice of authority and power. And so, by that conspiracy, we see uh, their, their hatred manifested and then applied uh, to the Lord Jesus, and it is that which will ultimately take Him uh, to the cross uh, upon which He accomplishes our salvation. You see, not only was Jesus truth and love and mercy incarnate, He was the light of the world. And by very definition, light diminishes, dismisses, and destroys the darkness. And so, those that were supposed to be representatives of the light were in fact of the greatest darkness. And their darkness was exposed. And they were inflamed. And they were incensed. And they would indeed be successful in their endeavor to place the Lord Jesus on the cross. So let's look at this third part of this, these issues, the controversies, and ultimately the consternation uh, there in the temple. Verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And David thus calls him Lord. So 
How is he his son? Pray with me, if you will. Father, how we thank you for the goodness of your grace, for the testimony to your accomplishment at Calvary, the accomplishment of our salvation. Salvation extended uh, to us to be received uh, by your grace through our faith in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would have clarity, that we would have understanding, that we would live in celebration, in the joy of the salvation that you have earned for us. I pray that you would give me clarity of thought, the ability uh, to speak, and these people the ability to understand so that your Spirit would work within us and among us so that we would know Jesus as our Savior the one who is high and lifted up. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll remind you, again, Jesus enters uh, the the precincts of Jerusalem on that uh, triumphal Sunday. He immediately begins to weep over uh, the state of that particular city, the state of uh, the citizens of the city, of the nation, over Judaism as a religion, and he moves to cleanse that temple, uh, further uh, enraging uh, those that had already decided uh, that he must be uh, destroyed. And so immediately he returns to the temple on subsequent days, and the religious leaders representing, again, the the spectrum of the various uh, sects and views within uh, Judaism, they question him. They begin to question him regarding the authority upon which he speaks and upon which he acts. And then they, he tells them this, this story or parable of the tenants in which, again, he very pointedly indicts them for the reality that they are indeed wicked tenants who have rebelled against God and those that God has sent to preach and teach to them uh, the truth. And then we see this question that uh, uh, they brought to him regarding taxation, uh, whether it's appropriate to actually uh, pay taxes to civil governments. And he speaks to that succinctly, and he speaks to it uh, directly. And now today, uh, they come to him to quiz him about this matter, this essential matter of whether or not the dead are raised. As I've said in relationship to the other issues that have been brought up, it is most likely that in each of these cases, it is not an exhaustive, systematic theology of the subject at hand. Uh, Jesus uh, addresses a peculiar question in a peculiar setting for a particular purpose of, of pointing out to them Uh, the arrows of their thinking. Now, to be sure, he's telling them the truth. We can rely upon that truth. But he's not going to say everything that could be said about taxes. He's not going to say everything that can be said about his authority. He's not going to say everything that could be said about the resurrection. But he will say much to us and for us today. So beginning there in verse 27, we see the Sadducees' question. And notice immediately... Luke has an aside there. Now remember, uh, Luke was a Gentile. He was not an eyewitness 
uh, to the events that he writes about uh, by way of interview, investigation. Uh, he uh, goes back and uh, listens to uh, these first-hand witnesses to get an accurate account so he can write this orderly presentation of the life and of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is aware that he is writing to a non-Jewish audience, or at least he has in view that they're going to be those that read my gospel that are not familiar with the customs of Judaism, with the, uh, the different groups that existed within Judaism. And so he, he gives to them something of a defining mark of this group uh, that we know of as the, the Sadducees, that they are those that deny... Uh, the resurrection. And so what they are doing, they are, they are confirming their belief, their belief system, by their uh, denials, uh, by denying uh, this supernatural work of God in raising uh, the dead uh, from, uh, the, from the grave. And so they demonstrate, in effect, uh, their unbelief by what they are rejecting. They, at the end of the day, uh, they believe a lie, they're entrenched in that lie uh, that will cause them to uh, reject the Lord Jesus and persist in their ongoing uh, assault against them. Now, I think I have at times identified the Sadducees as kind of an, an ancient liberal. And all of those things need to be qualified um, in that when we say conservative, conservative, whether political or theological, the idea is you're trying to conserve something that's been handed down, okay? is the idea in political conservatism. We, we believe we've been handed uh, things that we want to conserve or preserve as a way of life. In theology, we want to conserve, we want to preserve the truth of the gospel, the truth of the, the Word of God. But these guys, this group, they didn't, they're hard, again, they're hard to put in any category. And, and the best category I came up with this week as I thought about it, and I've never thought about it in these ways before, is most of us are familiar with the, the accusation, I guess probably accurate, that someone like Benjamin Franklin, maybe other founding fathers, were deist. That is, they, they, they kind of believed in God, that there was something or somebody out there somewhere, they just weren't real involved or God wasn't real involved in all the affairs of this earth, that, that uh, the idea of God was a cosmic watchmaker, and he wound up the watch, and now he's letting it run. That might be kind of close. Uh, the, the, the Sadducees didn't deny the reality of, of God. They affirmed the five books of Moses, the, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, uh, uh, Numbers, uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. They confirmed all of those books or affirmed the truthfulness. But for the most part, they rejected the rest of the canon of the Old Testament. And so, they, because they rejected so much of the revelation of God, the witness of God, uh, they became entrenched in this business of denying the reality of the resurrection. But yet, the Old Testament is filled with a testimony, with references to the reality uh, that God does raise people uh, from the dead. We find in Job chapter 19, verse 25, Job saying, And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall 
see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there's ample witness to this belief. And of course, the Pharisees believed in the reality of the resurrection. But this group, because they rejected the books that I just cited from, remained entrenched in denying. They denied angels. They denied the sovereignty of God. Uh, they denied all kinds of essential uh, truths related uh, to what God had revealed in the Bible. And here's what we find, just as a kind of a, a bit of a point of application. When you are discussing something, when you're seeking to persuade someone, when we present the gospel, now indeed we understand salvation, supernatural work, work of the Holy Spirit, imperishable seed of the new birth, work of the Holy Spirit, bringing regeneration, we understand that. But we make a case. We build a case for the truthfulness of the gospel. We seek to persuade people of its truthfulness and of its necessity. But the problem in that kind of conversation is you have to agree on a source of authority. You have to agree about truth and reality and the meaning of words. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, that increasingly becomes a problem uh, in the culture in which we're living. That, that we, don't, we don't even have the same source of authority. We have a transcendent source of authority, a transcendent God who's revealed Himself in the Word, and our culture increasingly says that the individual is autonomous. I am the ultimate arbiter. I am the ultimate source. I am the source of my own authority. And that's why you get into all this, well, I self-identify. I self-identify. I self-identify. Because nothing can contradict their feelings, their experience, their opinion. Not so with us. We have a source of authority, God and His Word. Again, these Sadducees, their only source of authority was those five books, the, the Pentateuch, that which I, I cited. And so they want to ask Jesus a question about the resurrection. And you'll see there in verse 28 what I call their counterfeit concern. Well, Jesus... We are very concerned that your teaching and your belief regarding the resurrection is going to lead some, some very, very perplexing, very serious problems in the context of eternity. Let us illustrate by way of question, if we may. I can see them all pompous and decked out in all of their robes and so forth and so on. Now, we need to remember... They have no interest in being persuaded. They have no interest in hearing the biblical case for the resurrection. All they're trying to do is to cre create an increasing tide of opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is interesting, and evidently we're told the scribes later kind of affirm what Jesus said. The scribes were primarily Pharisees. Again, the group that was kind of butting heads with the Sadducees over doctrine and over prestige and over power. And so we see uh, this uh, question 
that boils out of a counterfeit concern that, that things could get uh, fairly confusing in, the, in, in eternity. Uh, they, they want to uh, cause Jesus to be uh, trapped uh, between the issues of the priority and the sanctity of marriage and uh, the law of God. We talked about last week when we looked at the book of Ruth, this principle of the Leverite marriage that under the law that uh, a brother whose brother's wife died, was required to marry that widow and raise up a child uh, in the, for the name, for the, uh, 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 the perpetuation of, of the name of that deceased uh, brother. And so, if that happens seven times over, if what we have is a succession of seven brothers that marry the same woman and they all die, and they all die in a childless state, then what's the question? The question is, who is she going to be married with uh, in eternity? And so it's a very contrived situation. Uh, many times if you talk doctrine and theology, sometimes people uh, try to illustrate with absolutely uh, absurd, irrelevant, illogical types of situations uh, to undermine uh, truth. And so that is kind of a, I think the, the, there's a Latin phrase, reductio absur absurdium is the word. Reduce an argument to an absurd level. Now, what do you do about this convoluted and this contrived uh, thinking, thinking here? And the mistake they make, it's a fundamental mistake, is that they conceive that Life in the next age is going to be entirely like life in this age. That there now, we in the church we can we can have some pretty vigorous discussions about it with various groups over how we bring forward the truth that was revealed under the old covenant, how it applies to those of us living in the new. We can talk about the the law and and how do we bring it forward uh, uh, are, are we to observe the, the kosher dietary laws uh, many of you are, are sinning by wearing blended probably most of us are, are sinning today by wearing blended fabrics and on and on those things go and so are all things the same one, one of the things that uh, I disagree with the Presbyterian theologians regarding is the way they want to bring forward in a one-to-one -one kind of wooden way the concepts that are under the Old Covenant and imply them into the New Covenant, okay? Uh, and so we often speak of continuity as well as discontinuity. That for, as, as we move from age to age, Old Covenant, New Covenant, New Covenant to consummation. There's continuity, but there's also discontinuity about these realities and so they simply have erroneous or convoluted reasoning about the nature of life in eternity okay is, is their problem so let's move forward to see how Jesus answers their questions you can be, begin there in verse 34 he says that the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage once again, Jesus was a defender. He was a proponent of marriage. That it is good, it is honorable, 
It is biblical that God gave it to man as a good gift by which he would reverse the situation. He would remedy the situation of the aloneness of man, which God himself says wasn't good for the man to be alone. And so God remedies that according to his design for mankind, which was to fill the earth and rule over the earth. There was going to be uh, the the necessity uh, that children be produced to populate uh, the earth. And so... uh, these things necessitated this idea of male and female united in marriage for the the sake of the propagation of humanity. And so marriage is a a good thing. First of all, Jesus wants to say, but he goes on and says there are distinctions, verse uh, 35, there are distinctions related to the next age for those that are considered worthy. There, verse 35 considered worthy to attain to that age. Now, when I first began looking at this uh, probably a couple of weeks ago, that little phrase bothered me a little bit. It, It sounds like Jesus is saying something like, if an individual is good enough to be included uh, in uh, this resurrection of the dead to the presence of God, to the enjoyment of the privileges of salvation, uh, that, that they have earned that by some performance or intrinsic merit. And I, I begin to, to think and look and look at the words, and, and while I don't want to import upon Jesus uh, the, the fully robust uh, Pauline doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness uh, to us in our salvation, no, no, be sure, Paul got that from Jesus. And Jesus knew full well uh, the, the doctrine of justification by faith. I'm just saying he's not articulating everything here. But, but the language, the, the way the verb is constructed, uh, this is a, a participle, this, this idea of being considered, it's, it's a verbal noun, and so he's saying the one who is considered, the one who is viewed by God worthy is the one who is viewed worthy because they are in Christ, they have come to be in Christ, have their sins forgiven because they have believed in Him for salvation, okay? That this is this is a statement consistent with affirming of the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, through faith alone. It's not a not a works type of thing going on here in what Jesus said. But I did spend a bit of time. Just th- it just struck me that way upon initial reading of it. But that's not even the, that's not even the language that is being used here. So, those that are worthy, they're counted worthy, they're credited as worthiness, as as, uh, uh, Genesis says in Genesis 56, like Abraham being credited with righteousness through faith, those that are raised from the dead, they neither marry nor given in marriage. In verse 36 it goes on and says, because they cannot die anymore. He explains why here in just a moment. So, one of the reasons for the male-female binary, complementary uh, roles within humanity, for marriage, for family, is for the sake of having children, okay? And that's, that's a good thing. And God ordained that human beings would populate the church, uh, the, the, the world. And He didn't just create multiple human beings there at the beginning. He created two, male and female. He created them with a plan to populate the earth. A well-defined, well-organized, good, right 
proper plan, and again, we live in a culture that wants to rail against that plan to their own demise. The thing is, if you'll just wait long enough, those that want to rail against that plan and practice a lifestyle that goes against that plan, they'll die off and we won't have to worry about them anymore. Okay? Because it can't replicate itself. Just, just saying. We can't wait that long. None of us will be around. Okay. So, people don't die in eternity. So there's really no need for the bearing of children. Okay, there's no need for population. You know, the reason the, the earth needs to be repopulated is because what? And I'm going to tell you, and I looked in the mirror this morning and I saw it. A bunch of y'all are like me. We're in the process of depopulating the earth. You know, I, I, got, I got my hair cut this week. Who's, who, why don't you, don't you dust off this, this thing you put on me? Whose white hair is here on my stomach. That can't be my hair. Y'all laugh. Go ahead and laugh. Yeah. But we're in the process of depopulating. Mortality is running its course. And so there's a necessity still that we participate in the good plan of God. Won't be needed in eternity. But let me give you a better reason. This comes very much from the influence of of John Piper, uh, the book Momentary Marriage, some of his teaching. Recommend it to anybody and everybody. So a wonderful book. It's, it's not uh, a Christian how-to manual. It's a book that gives you the most profound biblical perspective of what marriage is. And first and foremost, yes indeed, God gave marriage to humanity as a good gift to to. Uh, to remedy the, the not good situation of aloneness, uh, to, to be useful in populating uh, the earth, to, to provide for uh, comfort and care for one another. All those things are good, and all those things are right. But please hear me when I say this. That is not the ultimate purpose for marriage. And let me tell you something. No matter how, how miserable you are in your marriage, marriage still serves a god ordained purpose because the ultimate purpose of marriage is to demonstrate to illustrate to dramatize the glory of the relationship between Christ and his church the love of Christ for his church to illustrate and incarnate the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and so marriage is given to us as a drama to be played out each and every day, to be put on display before our children and for our community, before our church, of the goodness, of the power, of the transforming work of God in the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. That is why marriage is ultimately important. That's why we fight to preserve marriage. That's why we seek to even perfect marriage in our own experience so that the gospel will not be distorted among those who see it through us. Okay? And so marriage is a foretaste. It is a glimpse. It is a shadow of that which is ultimate, namely our being raised from the dead to be in a, a consummate and perfect relationship with our ultimate groom, our ultimate kinsman redeemer, if you were listening last week, our ultimate groom who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me give you an analogy. The Old Testament sacrificial system was a shadow 
and a foreshadowing of the effective atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the fulfillment of all that God has done to accomplish our salvation. And so these things that were the shadows, the, the, the sacrificing of sheep and goats and bulls and doves and all of these sacrificial pictures of the necessity of shedding of blood, that was consummately perfected in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you've got the full color, fully orbed, incarnate reality, you don't need the shadow. Okay? That's why you don't bring your lamb to church with you. That was only a shadow. That was only a portrayal. And so here's the thing. Our marriages are to be the shadow, the foretaste, the portrayal. That They are to be a place in which the ecstasy of eternity is supposed to be tasted in the reality of the husband and wife relationship. But we will not need the shadow of marriage when we have the real thing, the thing that it was pointing to, the ultimate thing of being in the glorious and joyful presence of Jesus Christ forever. He will be our groom. He will satisfy each and every need. Yes. He is the fulfillment of what marriage promises. And so there will be no need for Mary to be to marry because the perfect has come. And so, you know, we we you get this you know, will I know my children in heaven? Will I still be married to my husband? Blah blah blah. All these questions. Every relationship and all of the joys that our relationships bring will be fulfilled and perfected in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, I believe you'll know who you were married to. I believe you'll know your children. All of these things. That's my conviction. Could be wrong. Not wrong about much, but I could be. You can, you can go nana nana boo boo in eternity if you want to. But when the per- perfect comes, when we are raised and we can comprehend in a way that we cannot comprehend the greatest of joyful satisfaction in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, this pale shadow will no longer be needed. That is why they are not married and given in marriage in heaven. Even though we're something like the angels, listen, you ain't angels now and you ain't going to be one. Okay? Just get over it. But you will be glorified saints which is better. Okay? You will be redeemed saints. You will understand just how great the love of Christ is because He loved a sinner like me and you and saved us from sin, death, hell, and the grave. Okay? So, we don't die somewhat like the angels. We're sons of God through the reality of His resurrection. We will participate in that Resurrection, we're sons of God through the work of regeneration. Peter can speak of it as we have partaken of the divine nature. You don't be, you're, you're not an angel and you ain't divine. And you ain't going to be either, okay? But in regeneration, the supernatural, the power of the resurrection has broken into our life right now. And so, we are legally and vitally sons of the living God.
sons of the resurrection. And so, Jesus is going to go ahead and, and prove to them from their agreed upon source of authority. Now, Jesus accepted the entirety of the canon of the Old Testament. Sadducees, only the first five books. But he says, wait a minute, guys. You're not reading your Bible very well. How many times have I said that to people in the course of my life when they come up with some crazy something? Well, you're not reading your Bible very well. Well, that's what Jesus had for them. You're not reading your Bible very well. Have you not read the account of the burning bush, what we saw up here uh, in the reading of our Scripture today uh, from Exodus 3? And very simply, as Jesus revealed Himself to Moses in that fiery but yet not consumed bush, He speaks of Him as not... Now, let me tell you something. Let me give you a bit of my resume. At one time... When those boys were alive and kicking, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, they, I was their God. I rule over them. They're no more. I got a new bunch of folks now. They're down in Egypt. I want you to go get them. Now, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus goes on to explain Jesus, or, or God, is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living, that all of these now live to Him. The Sadducees not only denied the resurrection, they denied what sometimes we call the intermediate state. They were materialist. That is, you live, you die, and that's it. And that's why they could live so, so hedonistically, so self-indulgently. Hey, that's all you got. You know, Go, go for the gusto. You only live once. Because when you die, you're dead. That's it. You're done. And so that was their view. And so Jesus is saying what? Wait a minute. Now, instead of Him being trapped on the horns of a dilemma between marriage and the law and the resurrection, He's got them trapped. Wait a minute. Now, we're not, going, we're not even debating the issues related to the balance of the canon. Let me just go straight to the books that you say are binding, authoritative, they're true. Now, one thing that's consistent with Sadducees and liberals is this idea of what we call Dalmatian theology. The Bible's inspired in spots, and I'm inspired in spots, spots. Okay? No. The Bible is totally inspired. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It hangs together. Okay? And so, they believe, well, you know, some of it's inspired, and we like this part. This is the convenient part for us. And so, Jesus explains all of this to them that, hey, it's your source of authority. You're saying it's binding. Now, you're hooked. Because the books that you believe, that you claim to teach and affirm and uh, continually uh, use uh, in, in, in your instruction within the temple, those books teach this business of the resurrection. And so, we're told that the scribes actually respond to Jesus. Now, I said the scribes were predominantly Pharisees. Those that believed in the resurrection. Now again, what are the scribes trying to do? Continue to inflame this animosity for the sake of killing uh, Jesus. And they simply say to him there in verse 39, Teacher, you've spoken well. That's good. Now, again, we still hate you. We won't kill you. You're still a problem. But you did put those uppity Sadducees in their place. You did, you did get them. And so they, 
presumably the Sadducees had met their match. They decide, we're not going to win an argument. We'll just have to go. Plan A didn't work. Plan B didn't work. Plan C didn't work. We'll go to plan D. And so they continue to work out their plan. Okay, so let's look at the third issue. Jesus is going to turn and ask of them a question. A question that's designed that they would understand who He is. Instead of just saying, listen, I, I am so sick of you guys. I am so tired of dealing with your stupid questions that, that, that I'm done with you. So don't talk to me and I'm not going to talk to you. He asked them a question. I want you to think about this, guys. He asked the question, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? And he cites Psalm 110, which is also cited in Acts chapter 2 by Peter at Pentecost. And the psalm, Psalm 110 reads, The Lord said to my Lord. Now here's the, one of the problems uh, with translations. Is the New Testament's in Greek. Uh, the Old Testament's in Hebrew. And then there's also a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint that's written in Greek. And there's not a distinction in the names for God in Greek that exists in Hebrew, okay? And so the original Hebrew version of Psalm 110 reads, Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand. It doesn't clearly distinguish in the persons of the Trinity between the first person of the Trinity, the Heavenly Father, and the Adonai, the Lord. And so the Father is saying to the Messiah, now they could agree, this is about the Messiah, okay, that, that you are to sit at my right hand, sit at the place of honor, until all things are accomplished, until your enemies are crushed. Now Jesus asked a question then. Now, David is the ancestor of the Messiah, and in a, a, a strongly patriarchal uh, society, in a society that that revered eldership, the, the, the preeminence of age, no father would ever speak to his son and call him Lord. That just, that just wasn't, wasn't done. And so how is it that this ancestor looks down through the quarters of time, through the prophetic telescope or microscope, whichever way you want to think about it, and sees a descendant, and how is it that he could refer to him as Adonai, as God, as Lord. Now Jesus doesn't answer the question for him. Okay? But how is it that an ancestor such as David, a king, would refer to a descendant that hasn't been born down through the generations of time? Why would he call him Adonai? Because the Messiah is God. The Messiah is the God-man. And because of his essence, because of his nature, because of his descent, from, because of his begottenness from the heavenly Father being uniquely conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, although he was eternally eternal, he becomes incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So he is the God-man, he is fully God and fully man, and it, that is the only way that it is appropriate, that it is right for King David to speak of his descendant as his Adonai, 
as His Lord. That the Messiah is uniquely the Son of God. And so if He's uniquely the Son of God, if He is divinely conceived of eternal origin, when He speaks, guess what? You better listen. You better listen. By whose authority do you do these things? Well, I've been saying, you've heard it said. You've heard it said. But now I say to you, I speak to you as David's Lord, as David's Messiah, as David's Adonai, I am the Eternal One. I am the Son of God. I am the One who rules and reigns, who speaks all truth. And so, how would they respond to who Jesus is? You can always get distracted on a thousand questions. And that's what they were trying to do. They were just trying to get ammunition to shoot at Jesus. You can always get bogged down in a million questions about why they did this and why they didn't do that. And who was this or who was that? The question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That, that's the question he puts before him. How am I uniquely the Son? How is the Messiah both Son and Adonai? If you solve that question, you solve the essential question. And so, how do we know? Just real quickly. How do we know He is the One? Well, let me just remind you. Jesus is the fulfillment of the seed of the woman who shall be bruised on the hill but yet crushed the head of the serpent. He is of the tribe of Judah. He is the descendant of David, born of a virgin in the little town of Bethlehem, who never sinned, who performed the greatest of miracles, who healed the sick, who raised the dead, who demonstrated His authority over demons, who demonstrated His power over nature. He was the one who would be rejected. He is the one who would be crucified as prophesied in the Old Testament. And He is the one who has been raised from the dead for our salvation. That's who Jesus is. And that's the one who has ultimate authority, ultimate power. And so just as was asked 2,000 years ago, who do you, who do you think this Jesus is? Who have you decided? See, Savior... Well, rightly, He is the authority as well. And He has the power to one day raise you from the dead. And if it's a reality for you, it is the power that's working in you as we speak right here and right now in this moment. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word to us, for us, and in so many ways about us. I pray that you would do what you only can do. I have no ability to raise the dead. I have no ability to regenerate those who are dead in trespasses and sin. Only you do. I pray that your truth has been heard. We believe that it is sufficient, that it is the imperishable seed of the new birth, that we have done as you have charged as you have called, as you have commanded us to do. And so God, we pray 
that you would do the work with your word that only you can do. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.